Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. You as ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mighty and awesome Word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You would come and minister to our hearts today, that You would illumine our minds, to see and comprehend and understand and submit to Your truth. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember back to my senior year in high school learning an acronym while in economics class. Tinstaffel. Yes, I'm sure you're familiar with that very popular word, tinstaffel otherwise known as there is no such thing as a free lunch. The idea behind the lesson of that class was to make sure that we as students realize that nothing is free in this world. Everything comes at a price. We considered why a free lunch might be offered and what costs were really at play. There may be hidden costs that are not normally considered. The price of transportation to get to the lunch, for example. Or the expenditure of time while at the lunch. The potential that you might buy something as a result of the lunch. Any of you been there before? The other activities that you give up in attendance by being in attendance at the lunch. There's always an opportunity cost. But not only this, but ultimately the lunch would have to be paid for by someone even if not by me. And if someone else is paying, it brings the question to mind, what is their reason for paying? This rule of economics has served me well throughout life. It's caused me to consider carefully before agreeing to freebie opportunities. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And it's given me pause to consider what Hidden costs may be in play, even if the free thing doesn't cost me directly. So then why do so many people today still speak of free products in advertising campaigns? They do so because it works. It sells. 
Have you ever heard the Joseph A. Banks commercials on the radio? You'll know if you have because the guy's voice is utterly distinctive. One of my favorite promotions that he goes on and on about, it comes up periodically in their ads, is that one in which you get two designer suits absolutely free. Absolutely free. Two designer suits. That is, as long as you buy one suit. Buy one suit and get two suits of equal or lesser value. Absolutely free. For curiosity's sake, I had my wife check out the store when she was at the mall one day. And upon searching through the store, she was able to relay back to me that one suit costs around seven to $800 on average. So can you do the math with me? Really, you're buying three suits for around $250 a piece. Now, they might be fantastic suits and certainly worth the money spent. I don't really know. I've never bought one from there. But my point is that the suits aren't really free, are they? Perhaps you've had this occasion before. You've gone to the grocery store. And at the checkout, after you have just spent $230, you're told by the cashier that you just saved $20 as they hand the receipt to you. For some reason, we accept this sort of terminology. I mean, I just spent $230, but now you're telling me that I've saved $20? Perhaps you should try this out next time we do some resale. After you sell something at a garage sale or perhaps on your eBay account, why not just inform your customers that they've just saved hundreds of dollars as they give you money? Well, it might be true that there's been a discount, and so you've paid less than you would have otherwise. You haven't really saved any money. There's just been an agreed-upon different price of exchange. But how we buy into this, pun intended, as being saving. Perhaps that speaks to our consumer culture Anyway, I digress slightly. Behind these sorts of contexts is the idea that the seller wants to leave the buyer with a warm fuzzy about the purchase. Seller's desire for buyers to feel that they had received a good deal and will therefore return because of the perceived value of the relationship. The hope is to emphasize in the buyer's mind the benefits garnered from the purchase. Now, what if we move to a slightly different sort of agreement. One that involves a significant decision that will carry larger and more long-term consequences. One-time purchases or seldom-made ones or long-term commitments. Don't we approach those matters differently? Well, I would at least hope so. But sadly, perhaps that's not always the case. There are some who enter into agreements far too quickly. There's an effort among those selling things that involve large upfront costs to usually minimize the costs and emphasize the benefits in order to try to make the sale. Sometimes they might even completely ignore the costs that are, being invo- that are involved. Think about significant economic decisions. Purchases of automobiles or housing or credit cards. Purchased through credit cards. As a matter of fact, anything that involves some sort of financing agreement could fall into this kind of category. It's easy sometimes to distance the cost from the benefits when making these sorts of decisions. 
You see, financing always adds a cost to the purchase. The seller foregoes immediate money in exchange for more money in the long run, while the buyer foregoes a lesser price, because he's going to pay more over the long term, for immediate gratification. He gets to enjoy the benefits of the product immediately while not paying anything or at least not full price right away. Now, my point is not that financing is never allowable, although it must be remembered what Proverbs 22.7 says, that the borrower is slave to the lender. Important instruction that we would do well to heed. My point is not so much to just say that there's never a place in which financing might occur, but that a wise man considers the full cost before entering into an agreement like this. You don't think you don't think that you're buying a house for $150,000 when after the interest rate and term of the loan is calculated, you actually are going to be paying $250,000. Because earning money involves the expenditure of your time, you must also consider the cost of your home life on your home life and your availability to spend time in other pursuits as you're paying this debt over a longer period of time. Carrying credit card debt is worse most of the time because of the higher interest rate typically being charged. Suddenly, the dinner that you paid $20 for becomes much more costly if not paid within the non-interest-bearing terms of the loan. Again, the point is not to condemn all credit card use or if you, for some reason or another, have had to carry a balance up to now. My purpose is merely to stress the importance of wisdom in such cases. You ought to sit down and consider... The true cost. Think about military recruitment. If all that was presented potential soldiers was the glories of victory and the benefits associated with serving our country, it would make for some very superficial soldiers. I mean, can you imagine them arriving at boot camp? They would have felt utterly lied to. I mean, I thought these guys promised me money and glory and honor. And all that I'm doing right now is a whole lot of horrible exercises and work under very difficult conditions. They'll probably quit as soon as possible and feel quite upset at the recruitment officer who didn't tell them about what they would actually encounter. But actually, worse yet than that would be a boot camp less training. No train, no boot camp at all. Which a bunch of flowery language is just given regarding military service and an immediate deportment into active service of those who are new recruits. I mean, ultimately, no one wants people in the battlefield that are unsure of the ugliness of war, of the danger present, of the cost involved. Desertion, while in the heat of battle, would bring massive complications into an already difficult arena. I've watched a couple of Discovery documentaries on the training of U.S. Special Forces teams like Air Force Pararescue, Marine Reconnaissance, Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal, and Army Rangers. They put those candidates through the ringer, treating them in what seems to be beyond severe ways, subjecting them to prolonged times in and out underwater, making them hike over countless miles of rough terrain, subjecting them to prolonged days with little to no sleep, demanding of these soldiers the expenditure of every physical and mental resource. But recognize what's behind that training. The idea is to prepare these soldiers for the harsh realities of the battlefield. 
Those who are timid and half-hearted are removed from the program, leaving those who are fully committed and ready for the task before them. And when it comes right down to it, who do you want next to you when in a survival situation? For that matter, who would you want as a co-worker or even as a volunteer? Wouldn't it be those who share a passion and commitment to the task at hand, who believe in what you're doing and will do what it takes to get the job done? When it comes right down to it, is it quantity or quality that really matters? History speaks of famous battles in which a few men held off massive armies. One of the most notable is the story of 300 Spartans, who along with a few thousand Greeks took their stand at Thermopylae and held off a Persian army numbering between 70 and 300,000. And they held them off for three days. Should we be surprised that if committed men can win in the face of insurmountable odds, that when it comes to God's cause, the number of men involved would not be the determining factor in the outcome of the conflict? Consider the command of Gideon. God selected a man who is from the least family of Manasseh, that man being the youngest of his family. I'm sure Gideon, remember he's approached by the angel of the Lord down in the lower parts of this wine press. He's threshing wheat, the very area where you would not typically thresh wheat. You'd want the wind to blow the chaff away. You do it out in the open. But he's scared that the Midianites are either going to kill him or take the food that he's trying to, to harvest. And so there he is hiding, threshing wheat in the wine press. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and, and greets him with the phrase, Mighty man of valor. I'm sure Midian looked around, or I'm sorry, Gideon looked around. Like, who are you talking about me? The Lord promises to deliver Israel through Gideon, the least of the least, with a mere handful of men. You remember the story. The Lord whittles 22,000 soldiers down to 300 men. And then, unlike the 300 Spartans who eventually were defeated, the Israelites were granted victory, but not by their might or power, but by God's miraculous act. God received all the glory for their victory. But it's interesting that the very first test put to the 22,000 was just a question as to whether or not they actually wanted to go out and fight. And as soon as that question was posed, 12,000 of the 22,000 left, more than half. You may say on fighting terms that Israel hadn't really lost any true soldiers until the second test, the lapping water test, where they went from 10,000 down to 300. You see, anyone ready to leave at the mere offer wouldn't be all that much of a massive help in the battle to come. Jesus himself was not impressed by mere numbers. Quality mattered to him. The passage before us this morning is introduced with a description of Jesus' audience. Look at it in verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him. So Herod's threat to kill Jesus, unless he immediately leave his district, didn't deter Jesus from going through the region, performing miracles and teachings, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Nor did it deter, though, the crowds from saving their curiosity regarding this teacher from Nazareth. They came out. They wanted to see him. Jesus' strong words of judgment against the Jewish religious leaders in which he exposed their hypocrisy and their motives for self-promotion perhaps struck some 
some sort of chord with the general populace. Maybe they heard of Jesus' parable in which the poor and needy and crippled and those from the highways and hedges were invited unto that eschatological feast. Could it be that these had come unto Jesus with pure motives? Could they be attending to Jesus out of devotion to Him? Perhaps it was now that Jesus was beginning to achieve the acclaim that He should have always had. Perhaps now He would usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Crowds are beginning to gather. Popular opinion may be swinging in Jesus' favor. Surely the sheer numbers meant God's blessing, right? Certainly these had all come with right hearts and clear intentions to be Jesus' disciples, right? I mean, don't numbers always indicate God's blessing? Or not? It is to this crowd that Jesus makes some clarifying statements. Some call them hard. And they are that and then some if Jesus' intention was just to placate the crowd and build popular support. That was never Jesus' purpose. He came to speak the truth in love and would not suffer a group of superficial hearers to maintain a professed position that was unbefitting their true status. So he confronted them with the requirements of discipleship. Or better said, the sine qua non, the without which there is none, of genuine conversion. Make no mistake about this. Jesus' teaching here is not meant to draw a line of distinction between the couch potato Christian and the truly committed disciple. No such category exists. Genuine Christians, a.k.a. Christ followers, are disciples of Christ and vice versa. It's definitional. Disciples are Christians and Christians are disciples. Now, there may be varying degrees in our sanctification and our being fashioned and formed into the image of Christ, but the evidences of genuine conversion are seen in the very things Jesus points to here in Luke 14. What we learn is that discipleship comes at a great cost. It's a cost well worth considering. So let's do just that. In this sermon entitled, The Cost, I'd like to consider the cost of discipleship from two directions, or from two perspectives better. First, let's consider how, number one, being a disciple involves great cost. Being a disciple involves great cost. Jesus' response to the crowds is quite unusual. I mean, as soon as these crowds gather around Jesus, He turns and He makes plain to them the cost involved in following Him. By the way, this is not the only time Jesus does this in His ministry. Take, for example, Mark chapter 8, where again we're told in verse 34 that He summoned the crowd with His disciples and He said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Jesus was not depressed when He was forsaken by the crowds, and neither was He elated when His ministry became popular. Jesus was too wise to pride Himself in the number of converts. He looked at quality rather than quantity. He knew what was in men's hearts. 
And so he calls this crowd to consider whether they know what they're really signing up for. There's no easy believism present here. Jesus doesn't instruct the crowd to just pray a prayer after Him and there you go. He isn't sugarcoating the truth about what it means to be a Christian. Yet that seems to be the pattern of our day. It's difficult to find the genuine gospel being preached today. His truth is not in vogue. Many altar calls are made today without so much as even a mention of the cost that is involved. I can remember my years in youth ministry attending a particular youth camp or conference. And at this, they had an extended altar call at the end. And I remember loads and loads of students flooding the aisles and coming down towards the front of that big hall. And all I can remember thinking in my mind the entire time is, what are they going down for? What are they approaching the front of this building for? Because as I rehearsed and reviewed what had been shared, all that I heard was a bunch of stories and little jokes and anecdotes. I didn't hear any of the Gospel. I didn't hear anything about sin and judgment, the holiness of God, God's justice. I didn't hear anything about the grace, love, and mercy of God which is provided to us through the cross. I didn't hear anything about Jesus, about His blood being shed. I heard nothing about His death, His burial, His resurrection. And meanwhile, when people were called to come down forward to accept Jesus into their hearts, there was no clear explanation regarding the Gospel. Now, I'm not saying that perhaps some might have gotten saved that day. But their conversions would have been in spite of what was said, not because of it. You see, Jesus makes plain the demands of the Gospel from the outset. And it's not one of these things where He's like, hey, just come and then we'll work on the rest later. He presents them from the outset. Inherent to following Jesus are certain necessary consequences. The point is this, you can't just follow Him for a while and then later on decide to strap on something more. The whole point is, in following Him, you're already there. You see, the Gospel is not add Jesus to your many gods, or add church attendance to your weekly routine, or wear a Christian t-shirt every now and then. The Gospel calls upon people to repent of their sin and their selfishness, to renounce any competing allegiance, to count all things as rubbish for the sake of having Christ, to take up our crosses and follow Him. The Gospel leaves you forever changed. We should never fear telling the truth about God's sovereignty and justice and holiness. Because a proper relationship to God involves a holy fear and reverence. People must relate to the one and only true God and know Him as He really is. They must see their unworthiness, their complete inability to save themselves before they will forsake all and cling to Christ. So Jesus tells two parables to express the importance of Counting the cost of discipleship. The first involves the building of a tower. And we see this in verses 28 through 30. He says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, 
this man began to build and was not able to finish. Key to good tower building is, first of all, developing a good plan, getting a good set of blueprints, identifying just what needs to be procured as far as resources go, and then budgeting to make sure that there's resources to put together this tower. Should a man begin building and fail to complete it, we're told that that's sure to bring ridicule to him. Jesus' point here is to try to evoke in us an understanding of contemplation. There should be a sense of contemplation before someone starts building a tower. So certainly, before deciding to follow Christ, there ought to also be a sense of contemplation. You see, a person is free to build or not to build a tower. The point is, decide whether or not you can build it from the outset. And by analogy, Jesus is trying to teach here that decide whether or not you can afford to follow me or not. Is it really worth it? You see, when much is at stake, is, not it, is it not worth our time and energies to ensure that our investment is sound and secure? If you had $1 million, would you not be wise to investigate the right kind of companies to invest it in or banks to save it in? We would all agree that it would be foolish to waste it on a sinking ship. Meanwhile, when it comes to the most important decision of your life, the question of eternity, why do so many people treat that decision so flippantly? Why is so much time spent in preparation for living in this world and not so much as a fleeting glance is given toward the eternity that awaits us? Perhaps it's because we're so preoccupied with this world. So Jesus calls the crowds to sit down and take stock to do some biblical arithmetic and come to a truthful conclusion regarding where they are presently. So I ask you, will you honestly allow an examination of your life to occur? Will you sit down and count the cost? You see, while the Gospel is free, it's by grace alone, you don't deserve it, and you cannot earn it, it will certainly cost you. Conversion that costs nothing is not true conversion. We must not sugarcoat the call to commitment. There is a radical life change involved in following Jesus. We ought, as Jesus did, to call others to count the cost. I pray that we not mislead others in our call to salvation. You see, emphasizing a gospel that places God as if He existed for man's sake is to do a disservice to the Lord. Man exists for God's glory, not vice versa. True discipleship demands total commitment to Christ. But consider the consequences of following. To be a disciple, you must make a complete commitment to Christ and submit yourself to Him. It was not all that long ago that I received a CD in the mail from some traveling evangelist and the title of the message was Try Jesus. Try Jesus. The message approached conversion and the preaching of the Gospel in almost infomercial stylings. Try on Jesus. See if He works for you. You see, the Gospel, though, is not rightly offered with a 30-day trial period. 
is to completely misconstrue the real situation. You see, Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And He cannot be your Savior unless He is also your Lord. He freed you from slavery to sin to make you a slave to righteousness. And while we might distinguish between Jesus' work as Savior and His work as Lord, we must not separate them. This is akin to our study of the perfections or attributes of God. We distinguish them from one another in order to focus on one at a time, in order to consider it, to think through it. But as we distinguish these perfections of God, these attributes of God, we must not ultimately separate them. We accommodate our finite understanding by thinking about each one in turn, but truly, in the end, these are not separate things. And this is one of the problems that a lot of people run into when they get to theology. They start stressing God's love over His holiness or over His righteousness. And they fail to recognize that God is all of His perfections. I remember reading, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that perhaps a good way to look at the perfections or attributes of God is to consider each one as it views the others. So, for example, if we're considering God's love, we can say that God has a holy love, that He has an omnipotent love, that He has a gracious love, that He has a righteous love. Each one of the attributes kind of shedding light on the others. So, as we can distinguish Jesus' work as Savior and His work as Lord, we cannot separate His work as Savior and Lord. He is both or He is neither to you. We know from Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks for God. In other words, what we're told from Romans 3 is that it is God who initiates any longing in a person for Himself. Those who truly seek God do so as a result of God's prior work upon their hearts. Now, those who are being drawn to God by the Holy Spirit want the genuine gospel. They want the real thing. They don't want a sugar-coated thing. They don't want a fake gospel. Take, for example, Cornelius. He's told to call Peter to his house, and Peter is sent by the Lord. In Acts 10.33, we read Cornelius' statement to Peter. He says, I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God, now listen to this, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius doesn't want a truncated gospel here. He wants the full truth. Two problems occur with the easy believism gospel that pervades our culture. Those that are not genuine seekers end up thinking themselves to be saved. They're under a deluded understanding of their own position before God. They think themselves to be saved when they're really lost. And then simultaneously, those who are genuine seekers, because the Holy Spirit is drawing them unto Christ, don't hear the genuine Gospel. Both ways. It's wrong. To be sure... Being confronted with the truth is costly. It will involve a complete change of life. But can you afford to put this decision off any longer? 
Will you persist in holding on to your sin in light of a coming righteous judgment? Will you cling to the deceptions of this world and carry them to hell with you? Or will you repent and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, you can decide on whether or not you want to build a tower, but there's a difference when it comes to war. Jesus changes the analogy here now, and He moves in verse 31 and 32 to a different setting. He says, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The key in being able to fight a war is good scouting. Knowing how many troops are coming against you, what's the relative strength of the army coming against you, and what is the strength of your own army? And then you've got a couple of options. You either recruit and get ready and prepare and go to war, or you engage in diplomacy. Failure to complete either one of those means defeat in war, which brings big consequences. With a tower, you decide to build it or not. But with war, the difference is that war is upon you. You must do something. You can't, do, you can't just not do anything, for inactivity is to make a decision as well. And Jesus' argument here shifts away from this sense of contemplation towards a sense of urgency. Yes, you must count the cost, but you must also count the cost of waiting any longer. You must make a decision. And can you afford to put it off? Consider that. Can you afford to put it off? You see, by default, we're not on peaceful terms with God. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world because Jesus said the world already stood condemned. The wages of sin is death. By default, we're enemies of God. So considering this parable in our minds, we're drawn to consider whether we can afford to put off a decision regarding Christ. Only through Jesus can we be made friends with God. So consider who you are up against should you reject the only mediator, your only ambassador between you and God. The only mediator between God and man is Jesus. And should you reject Him, think of whom you are enemy to. That's none other than God Himself. Think with me of God's power. He's the Creator. Everything exists because He willed it to. And nothing but God's sustaining power holds it together. Everything was made by God, and everything was made for God. He controls all of nature. Thunderstorms, lightning, earthquakes, volcanoes, typhoons. All the situations that we face day in and day out. All of our circumstances in the very length of our lives. There's not a rogue atom in the universe that is not ultimately under the sovereignty of God. God is all-powerful. God is in control. There's no fortress or defense that can withstand Him. The greatest earthly kings are less than nothing when compared to the Almighty Creator and King of heaven and earth. So joined hand in hand, vast multitudes of God's enemies will be demolished like pieces of straw before an approaching hurricane or pine needles in the midst of a raging forest fire. All will be consumed. Luke 12, verse 4, Jesus warns, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more than they can do. I warn you who to fear. Fear the one after he is killed 
who after he is killed has authority to cast him to hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There ought to be a rightful reverence towards God in our hearts. Think not only of God's power, but of his position. He's the unbeatable champion. He's the unconquerable hero. He's the glorified victor. He has no fatal weakness. There are no errors in his judgment. He has no flaws. He's perfect. He reigns supreme. He answers to no one. He's arrayed in splendor. He's limitless in power. It's in this context that Jesus sets down a scandalous set of requirements. A scandalous set of requirements. The three statements that Jesus makes in this passage cut against the grain of the fallen, sinful human heart. They just plain do not exist apart from being a genuine disciple of Christ. He says in verse 26, You must hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life to be his disciple. These words are scandalous because on the surface they even appear to be anti-scriptural. Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, commands that we honor our parents. Jesus says in Luke 16, 17, that not one stroke of the law will fail. Also, Jesus commands in Luke 6, 27, that we love even our enemies. If this be the case, certainly we ought to love our relatives, right? So how does this fit? Well, it can be shown that it's really in keeping with Jesus' words regarding summing up the law. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Note here that love for God is primary. God receives our chief loyalty. Everything else flows out of this. And what we discover is that the love-hate language utilized in the Bible is really used to describe that of loyalty or that of greatest love or that of choice. Let me demonstrate that. Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, we read the following. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for seven years. Now the next verse says this. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. That's the NAS. The ESV translates that Leah was hated. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So, we were just told in the previous verse that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then God says that it's because Jacob hated Leah, because Leah was hated, he opened up Leah's womb and not Rachel's. Another example, Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 and 16. Speaking to a context very similar to that one. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, or otherwise translated, hated. And both the loved and the hated have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the hated, then it shall be in the day he wills that what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn, because the son of the hated, before the son of the hated, who is the firstborn. The point that's being made here is that a man couldn't just select the wife that he loved more and take her firstborn child and make that the firstborn. Whoever's the firstborn is the firstborn, whether or not that was the chosen wife of the husband or not, whether that was the more loved one or not. 
See how that language of love and hate is being utilized here. doesn't mean that he hates emotionally, but that this one is chosen over the other. But one is loved more than the other. Malachi 1, 2, and 3 picks up in this language. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. That's quoted in Romans 9, 13. It's not that God didn't have any love for Esau. God loves the whole world. It's just that God has a special love for Jacob, which involved the furtherance of God's plan. Paul explains, For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. The love shown for Jacob was seen in God's choice of Jacob. And that choice was made before either of the twins were even born. Before they had done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. And there's nothing unfair about this. If you cry out in Romans 9, that's unfair, that's unfair. Well, you're following along very well with Paul's argument. Because there's nothing unfair about this, because as we're told in the following verses... God is under no obligation to anyone. He's not obligated to anyone to show anyone mercy, love, or grace. To give anyone forgiveness. He will have mercy on whom He has mercy, and He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. The point is this. The language points to commitment or loyalty or choice. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Your love for Him, if you want to follow Him, your love for Him must be such that even the best of earthly loves is hatred by comparison. Matthew 10, 37, great parallel verse. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The point is that disciples of Jesus would rather offend family than Christ. And in some families, this is exactly what will be put to the test. The question is, who do you seek to please? Who directs your beliefs and behavior? Discipleship really is fundamentally a matter of allegiance. Who do you ultimately submit to? Jesus says His disciples make choices in accordance with His will. And by the way, as a side note, in the end, this is what's best for one's family anyway even if it's not interpreted by them as such. This is so because God's glory and man's good are not at odds with one another. Who knows, the Lord might even use it to lead them to conversion as well. Verse 27, Jesus says, man must carry his own cross and come after Jesus. Or at the end of 26, he says he must even deny himself. And then, carry His cross and come after Jesus. Verse 27. Steps crucial. A person must be emptied of themselves to be filled with God. There has to be a rightful recognition of our true state as wretched, miserable, spiritually dead. And then Jesus says, once a man is emptied of himself, he's then to take up his cross. To take up one's cross means to endure the derision of the world. To willingly submit to the worst that the world can throw at you, all the while trusting that the Lord will preserve you. Following Jesus involves suffering. Philippians 1.29 does not separate these two things. To you it has been granted not only to believe in His name, but also to suffer for His sake. 
If it has been granted to you to believe, if you've been granted faith in Christ, then it has also been granted to you to suffer for His sake. Belief and suffering are together. Those who follow Christ will take up their cross and follow Him. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10-12, through 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, identifying with Jesus will involve being regarded as scum by the world, enduring their insults and persecutions, just as our Lord Jesus Christ received. Jesus said the prophet, they did unto the prophets before me, and they did it to me too. Jesus said in John fifteen twenty, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus has to walk the path He trod. His path included the cross. So those who follow Him will also carry the cross. Verse 33 is the third scandalous statement made by Jesus. He says they must, they must give up all their own possessions. Or otherwise translated, must give up all that he or she has. Jesus' words must not be taken to mean that we all must live monastic lifestyles. Remember, some people have taken these words that way, but remember that genuine Christianity is not seen in merely outward forms anyway. It is much more a matter of inward affections. Jesus' point is that nothing can hold our hearts but Himself. It's interesting to remember Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. A little bit further on here in Luke. Jesus' approach seems so contrary to today's gospel invitations. I mean, did Jesus just miss out on a right convert? This guy comes up to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus then starts spouting out law. And says he's kept all these from his youth. Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. At that, the man goes away sad because he had great wealth. Did Jesus miss a great, great convert here? I mean, many people would say that he had just failed in personal evangelism. Why didn't he just lead the guy in a sinner's prayer? Instead, Jesus sees this man's heart and he prevents a false conversion which would have given this man a false hope. Jesus' true disciples render unto him wholehearted devotion and all-out loyalty. They deny themselves. They place their time, their possessions, their talent at Christ's disposal. You see, a proper recognition of all three of these scandalous requirements just indicate what genuine decision for Christ to follow Christ is all about. Discipleship means giving one's first loyalty. It's not periodic work done at one's own convenience. It's not based upon feelings. Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Discipleship involves suffering for Christ's sake. Discipleship is not self-esteem, but self-denial. Someone can't just try harder, though, and arrive at this situation. I already mentioned that man's heart, his sinful, rebellious heart, doesn't incline towards self-denial and suffering for Jesus. This is only possible as the grace of God transforms a person giving that person a new heart, a new mind, a new will, from which they will gladly lay down their lives for Christ 
and be spent for God's glory. But be assured of this. All that a disciple does is follow in the footsteps of his master. Which brings us to the second vantage point that we must consider. Point two, procuring disciples required great cost. Procuring disciples or gathering disciples required great cost. Just as Jesus' actions seem very unusual, it was a very unusual way that God intended to gather a great multitude. The manner of Jesus' ministry is surprising, warning people about what following Him meant from the outset. But it's just in keeping with the means of His ministry. Who would have imagined that God's rescue plan for sinners would require the sacrificial death of His Son for us? Jesus is just explaining what it means to follow Him. This is what His life was all about. Jesus is gathering a great host of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. True, genuine, authentic followers who have been saved by grace and transformed by grace. The words that Jesus speaks are not seen as hindrances to their following, but privileges. They rejoice to be granted the opportunity to suffer for Him who suffered on their behalf. This is what I want you to note with me. That scandalous set of requirements were met in Jesus. There's a scandalous meeting of the requirements. Because when you stop to think about it, Jesus is not calling His disciples to do anything more than what He has already done for them. His words amount to, if you want to follow Me, then you will share in the experiences that I have received. The Savior who calls us to count the cost of following Him had already counted the cost of His own obedience. He knew what was in front of Him. He had set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Luke 9.51 He was determined to finish the task before Him. Jesus says following Him will have consequences for all of the relationships. Well, that's true. But... Jesus Himself didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He left His Father's home above to seek and save the lost. Doing His Father's will would even mean being forsaken of His Father as He cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only this, but Jesus emptied Himself, made Himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant, being Born in the likeness of men, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus denied Himself and took up the cross. He, the sinless Lamb of God who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus endured the insults of the world for us. He patiently bore the scorn and shame, the scandal, of the cross. He died that we might live. He was crushed that we might be blessed. He became poor that through His poverty we might become rich. Jesus gave up all that He had in perfect obedience to God the Father to accomplish the plan of redemption. And by this, He secured a people for God's own possession. You see, following Jesus is truly that. 
we are following in the path of our Savior and Lord. How can you claim to be His follower and not follow Him? He bore ultimate suffering for our sake and now grants us the privilege of suffering for His sake. But we must always be clear that our salvation rests in the finished work of Christ. Our following is creaturely. We imitate Christ, but our death is deserved. Our riches are not ours by right. The benefits we receive are all of grace. We love Him because He first loved us. It is His love that met His law's demand. This is the perspective from which true disciples of Christ operate. It is not thoughts of how little I can get away with giving that fuels my service, but how much my great God deserves. Note with me quickly the lasting influence of Jesus' ministry. We see it in verses 34 and 35. He says, Therefore salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's neither suitable for the earth or manure pile. It's thrown out. When having ears to hear, let him hear. There's been considerable discussion regarding how salt can lose its saltiness. Technically, it can't. Salt is intrinsically salty, which may be Jesus' point here. However, many have commented that salt mined from around the Dead Sea was a mixture of salt and gypsum, from which it was possible to collect a sample in which the salt had perhaps leached out. And in such a situation, the resulting crystals would not be salty, therefore useless. But either way, Jesus' point is that saltless salt is useless, worthy only to be disposed of. The analogy here is quite simple. Unsalty salt is worthless. So are unchristlike Christians. Yes, salvation saves us from hell, but it also grants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. What was distorted in the fall by sin is now being restored by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus is saving a peculiar people who are then made ambassadors of His. Those saved by Jesus' gracious work are transformed into messengers who bear the message of Christ in word and deed and mission. His mission is ours. His purpose is ours. His cause is ours. He's now seasoning the earth to the faithful witness of His followers. And were Jesus' disciples not transformed into Christ's likeness, there would be a tremendous disconnect in God's saving purpose. If salt was no longer salty, it would be completely useless. So Christians who don't look, sound, and act like Christ would be useless. So this is not how Christ operates. Those who follow Him, those who are truly Christians, those who are truly His disciples, demonstrate His priorities, His life, His teaching, to the world. They are His ambassadors. His witnesses. So can you afford to be a genuine follower of Christ? While salvation and grace are free, becoming a Christian will cost you everything. Everyone desiring to live godly will suffer persecution. There are no promises of financial prosperity or freedom from sickness or the like. But there is the promise of the Lord's presence with you in the midst of every difficulty in an eternal home with Him one day. That's one question to consider. Can you afford to follow Christ? Can you afford to be a Christian? But the second one that follows that is, can you afford to put that decision off? Can you muster the strength to stand against the Sovereign Lord? Or instead, will you make peace with Him? Recognize what you need is an ambassador to work out terms of peace on your behalf. There's only one 
who can represent you in God's courtroom, the God-man. There's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. He was truly God and truly man. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14:6. God stands ready to pardon you if you will repent and trust in Jesus, the Son of God. He who died in the stead of sinners as a substitution. He bore the wrath of God so that sinners who believe in Him won't have to. Because you see, there's coming a day when it will be too late, when your cries will not be heard, when your pleas will be in vain. But right now, in this moment, God stands ready to forgive you. For this is an appointed time for the display of His mercy. If you will cry out to God with hope of attaining mercy, if you will forsake all, if you will deny yourself, if you will cling to Jesus Christ, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, He will save you. Yes, salvation comes at a cost. At the dearest price. Salvation is not ours by cheap grace. Jesus' disciples give everything because their Savior and Lord gave everything. The Gospel calls for wholehearted, undivided loyalty, for willingness to suffer the loss of all things, even the laying down of one's life. But those who lose their lives will find them. Those who suffer with Christ will share in His resurrection. Anyone who leaves houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for Jesus' sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Yes, it will cost you everything, but you'll never regret it. You may regret time wasted and resources misspent in this life, but no one on their deathbed will regret having spent their lives and resources in service to Jesus. To share in Jesus' humiliation in this world only ensures that you will partake in His glory in the world to come. John Calvin said, Building is a tedious and vexatious matter. War too brings along with it many inconveniences. Yet the advantages of building are found to be sufficient to induce men to spend their substance on it without hesitation. While necessity drives them to shrink from no expense in carrying on wars. But a far more valuable reward awaits those who are builders of the temple of God and who fight under the banner of Christ. For Christians do not labor for a temporary building or fight for a passing triumph. John Piper makes a great statement. Jesus did not die to make this life easy for us or prosperous. He died to remove every obstacle to our everlasting joy in making much of Him. And He calls us to follow Him in sufferings because this life of joyful suffering for Jesus' sake shows that He is more valuable than all the earthly rewards that the world lives for. If you follow Jesus only because He makes your life easy now, you'll look to the world as though you really love what they love. And Jesus just happens to provide it for you. But if you suffer with Jesus in the pathway of love because He is your supreme treasure, then it will be apparent to the world that your heart is set on a different fortune than theirs. This is why Jesus demands that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. Suffering for Jesus is temporary. Pleasure in Jesus is eternal. Discipleship is costly. But it's worth it. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for the beautiful cost of discipleship. Being called to love You above all other affections. To deny even ourselves, to carry our cross, to endure suffering, to follow Jesus, to give up all that we have in service to You. It's just a response of gratitude to recognizing that Christ has given all in the redemption of sinners. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for the genuine, true Gospel. May we demonstrate its reality in our lives. May we follow our Lord and Savior who has laid down His life as a ransom for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.